Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. You may know me from the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling stories of my life after alcohol for the last six plus years. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today, our guest is Annika Omelia of Mother Recovering, a blog and a podcast about life after alcohol from the perspective of a young mom. Annika, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hello, Jean. Thank you so much for having me on the Bubble Hour. I um I have been loving your podcast. I, you know, it's always great to hear new things, new voices and perspectives. And uh, I think you have seven or eight episodes up already. And gosh, you're doing a great job. Are you enjoying it? I am. Yeah, I, I kind of impulsively started doing it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an impulsive person. So I'm finding my way through it as I'm making the episodes like, you know, this, the little things like intro music and stuff like that. I'm still kind of working out, but it's been really fun. Oh, it sounds great. Well, before we talk about the podcast, first, I'd like our listeners to get to know you a little bit. So let's start by hearing your story. Um, tell us about Annika <laughs> and how, yeah. um, how this trajectory has unfolded in your life. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I've ever really told like my full story kind of going back to the very beginning, but um I'm the third of four kids and grew up in the Midwest and have really lovely parents and siblings. Um, But I actually got drunk the first time when I was about five years old, which is kind of strange. Um, I was a flower girl in my aunt's wedding and they had a reception at our house and people were drinking, you know, alcohol and little styrofoam cups or, or like plastic wine glasses or champagne flutes. Um, And I just kind of went around the party and had little sips, probably mostly saliva, (laughs) other people's (laughs) like leftover alcohol. Um, And I just have always thought that that was interesting because from the first time that I tried alcohol, I I just kept drinking it until I actually got sick and threw up. Um, And my parents were absolutely horrified and felt terrible, of course. But I think even as a really little kid, I knew that alcohol was kind of magical. And, you know, I, the people in my family work very hard, but they also play hard. And like, I grew up not knowing anyone who didn't drink. Um, I remember dating a guy in college and I went home with him and like no one in his family was drinking. And it was, it was like being on another planet, like all my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my siblings, you know, the friends my parents had, that's just what people did. And I think even as a child, I saw that drinking loosened people up. It brought barriers down. Um, my grandpa was like a barbershop singer. And so people would drink and they'd start singing and hugging. And it was definitely seemed like a magic potion or some type of special elixir. Um, so I think even from a young age, I kind of aspired to be a drinker and you know, in my house, people didn't drink and like yell at each other or cry. It was very jovial and uh, like one big like fraternity party or something. Um, so my dad's a physician and my mom is an interior designer. And, you know, I went to school and kind of very high achieving, like got good grades, played sports, um, was always pushing myself to accomplish things. And I have a brother who's six years older than me and a brother who's 10 years older than me. And so I watched them go off to college and they drank, they didn't drink in high school, but like in college, that was part of their um, life was getting good grades and achieving, but also partying. And it looked so fun. Like that was what being a grown up was. They had all these stories about friends and, you know, fun things they were doing and they were getting their schoolwork done too. Um, So in high school, I, well, actually even in like junior high, there were a couple of us who would steal alcohol from my parents or from my friend's parents and, you know, drink a little bit. Um, I even remember, I have this vivid memory of being in junior high and working on like a diorama for school. And I took school really seriously and being stressed out about this project and, and getting like three beers from the refrigerator in the garage and hiding them under my bed. And then thinking, well, I'll finish this 
project and then I'll have a beer. And I didn't even like the taste of beer. I like drank this beer and then had some pretzels. Um, but I, I already kind of understood that alcohol was something you use to like get through the pressure of life or, you know, and that's what kind of being grown up was. Um, so I binge drank in high school and I still like, even at that age, when I started drinking, I had a really hard time stopping. So, and I know, I don't think at that point in my life, I ever thought that was the point would be to have like a drink. It was to try to get away with getting the alcohol and then drinking it like in someone's basement and making sure the parents didn't find out and drinking it fast and um, trying to get as drunk as you could before, you know, you didn't have a lot of time to party like at someone's house on a weekend or um, so, yeah, I was already drinking regularly in high school. And then in college um, I kind of thought like, okay, I've arrived. Like I get to, you know, have alcohol in my dorm room and, I just knew that like partying would be a big part of my college experience. Um, and I'd watched my brothers do that and it looked great. And I would say that I went off to school um, to achieve and do well, but also to have fun. And I just had like a completely different experience than my two older brothers. And I think part of that is just being a woman. Um, you know, it's different when you go to college and like, the way I drank and blacked out and I just had a series of um, getting in trouble and then having some pretty awful things happen. Um, so like when I was 20, I went to a bar with my boyfriend at the time, who was like this big six foot four guy and we were really drunk and didn't have money. I went to Northwestern in Chicago. So we were at this bar in like the North side of Chicago and uh he, he'd made friends with this guy from the town, like a townie person. And um, this guy was like, oh, I'll take you guys back up to Northwestern. It was probably a 20-minute car ride. Um, and so we get in the car with them, and I'm with my big boyfriend, and I'm like, I'm fine. But I was very, very, very drunk. Um, and he's like, I need about $5 of gas to get to where you guys need to go. And he pulls into a gas station, gives my boyfriend a $5 bill to go in and pay. And this is the year 2000. So like, there's no, I didn't have a cell phone on me or anything like that. And as soon as my boyfriend gets out of the car, this guy takes off with me in the back seat, and oh, no. yeah, he just starts driving South through stop signs. Like if you're familiar with Chicago, the lake's right there. So he was just driving pretty close to the lakefront, but going the wrong direction from where I went to school. And I got out of that situation. So I climbed in the front seat was like, screaming at him to let me out of the car. And I watched enough Oprah to know, like, you never let them get you to the second location. Um, but how much I drank that day, I'm always amazed that I ended up having the wherewithal. I think it's just that fight or flight, like animal thing took over. Um, but I had to like basically hit him until he slowed the car down. Cause he wasn't stopping for stop signs. And I opened the car door and um, I actually don't have a memory of actually like, jumping out of the car I think the, the fear of that like flooded my brain and I can't remember that exact part of it um, and then I just ran back from the way I was coming and eventually reconnected to my boyfriend and we called the police and they just kind of laughed at me and were like well you should never have gotten in that car um, they didn't even give us like a ride back to school but I do kind of feel like that was a turning point in my drinking because after that, I had a lot of anxiety, and I was drinking at the time that that really scary thing happened, and so I feel like it became this thing where the drinking would trigger the fear, or because there was a moment in that car where I thought, I'll never see my mom and dad again. Like, I'm not going to yeah. be alive in half an hour, um, and so that kind of got mixed up a little bit with the drinking stuff, and I didn't really want to go out anymore, so I drank a lot, like, in my dorm room by myself. Um, and there was just all kinds of anxiety. I really tried to control my environment and my safety and I didn't like go to bars. I didn't, you know, I, and keep in mind, I wasn't even 21 yet. So I'd been at a bar with a fake ID. Um, so that happened. And then on my actual 21st birthday, I'd been not out and about a lot because of that experience. And I decided to have a party at my house in my hometown with like my high school friends. 
Um, and we had, but I had some people spend the night because they didn't want to drive. And I hadn't been like necessarily partying a lot, but I was like, okay, I'm in my own home. Like I'm safe here. I, you know, with these people that I know and they're, I did drink and I went to bed that night, but I like remember kind of passing out in my room. Um, and a guy I'd known since junior high who I'd let stay there cause he was too, he didn't want to drive. Um, and this is a person like who I would have considered a friend, but I'd never had a romantic relationship with him. Like there was nothing in our history that would lead him to think that I was interested in him. And I woke up and he was assaulting me and like that was in my house on my 21st birthday. And, um, and that happened. And I told a couple friends, but they were like, Oh, that's terrible. Like, that's horrible. But I didn't really know what to do with that emotionally. And so, yeah, I, I feel like after a couple events like that, when I did drink, I just, it turned from being fun to being dark almost. So I always drank too much and I never knew when I started drinking, when I would stop, but by the time I was like 22 or 23, when I would drink, I would also get to a place where even if I was trying to have fun, um, I would cry a lot. I would get angry. Um, and I don't think I was acknowledging at all how those things affected me when I was sober or on this, you know, in my day to day life. But then when I would drink, like I would talk about it, I would cry about it. Um, and I was just trying to self-medicate, I think, um, but I do feel like that's an important part of my story because the drinking went from being like what I'd watched in my childhood of more of that connecting with people, hugging, being silly stuff to now I'm crying and like sometimes purposely putting myself in dangerous situations. Like we'd go out and I'd run away or disappear. You know, I'd always like disappear on my group of friends um, to go home or walk home or, so by the time I was 23, I would have these episodes and I never knew when it was going to be, but like I'd start drinking one night and I'd just end up a hot mess and then wake up the next day and feel really full of shame and just terrible about myself and embarrassed. So I actually called um, a 12-step program when I was 23 years old because I didn't know anyone who didn't drink. And I was starting to recognize that drinking was a problem for me. Um, and I was dating my the guy who I ended up marrying and he, we would have like family function things and I'd never go because like the night before the event, I'd always drink too much. And then I'd be so hung over the next day that I couldn't show up for the brunch or the, you know, stuff like that. And it was bothering him. Um, he thought I was drinking too much. So I went to an AA meeting when I was, or 12 step meeting when I was 23. Um, but I just did not connect. Like I got it. I liked it, but I also thought like, I can't spend my life here. This is not, this won't work. Um, and so I, I kept drinking and plus I was getting married and I was like, well, I'm not going to not drink when I get married or go on my honeymoon. Um, so, and interrupt me anytime if I'm talking too much or. <laughs> no, keep going. going. You're, telling it. You're telling it so well. Yeah. So I got married and some, you know, we went on our honeymoon and I ended up singing that Billy Joel song, like there was karaoke and that always got me in trouble. I'm like the most inappropriate drunk karaoke out there. Um, and I sang that Billy Joel song. That's like, go ahead with your own life, but leave me alone. You know, like that, it was like day two of the honeymoon and I just got completely wasted and picked a really bad song to sing to the person you've just married. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I hate being told what to do. I'm always like, you know, but he's, he puts up with me, but, um, yeah, so then I, like, had graduated college, got married, went on to get a master's degree, and it was when I was in St. Louis getting a master's um, that was probably the darkest time of my drinking because it was became very isolated. So I feel like in my early 20s, my drinking, I got uninhibited. I was out and about. Like, I got into trouble out externally. Um, and then in my mid-20s, it became more of a solitary um endeavor because I couldn't do it publicly because I would embarrass myself. Like we lived in this cool loft downtown St. Louis and I invited my class over to watch um, the election results come in when John Kerry was running against George Bush. And so I invited 20 people to our apartment and I was excited and like 
you know, but I started drinking at noon to get ready for this party. And by the time everyone came over to all these strangers who I was trying to make friends with in my new grown up life with our apartment. And by the time they showed up like an hour in, I had passed out in the bathroom and my husband was there with like 30, you know, strangers in my master's program trying to entertain them the rest of the night and telling them that I had eaten something during the day and gotten sick. And so I couldn't, he was so sorry, but they were welcome to stay and watch the election results. And like, but I didn't plan to do that. It's just my drinking would just take me to these weird, weird places. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of forgotten about that. So, and then it just, you know, but that's why I isolated myself because I would do embarrassing things when I was out and about. And so it turned into me like doing a lot of drinking just in front of the TV, you know, and my husband would go somewhere, do something. And I'd be like, let's just stay in. And I would rewatch like the same movies and just drink and think about my life, like what had gone wrong, what my goals were, you know, a lot of fantasy, like what do I wish I was doing? What am I going to be doing in the future? Um, But my life just started to feel like Groundhog's Day, like every day, I'd wake up feeling like crap and I'd go to school um, and I was doing well in school, but I would, you know, think I'm not going to drink tonight. And then I, around noon, it starts to feel a little better. And by three, the cravings would kick in and I, you know, stop and get alcoholic on the way home from class. Um, But it was bothering my husband and he felt like we'd just gotten married. And all I seemed to want to do was just drink by myself every night to the point of like, blackout and he was right that became kind of what I wanted to do um and that started me going to therapy because I was needed some help and I had this like amazing therapist and I do credit her a lot with saving my life really um and we did some therapy on some of my trauma and that was super helpful and then she just kind of started tying together for me like have you noticed that all the things that have really been problematic for you or that caused you a lot of pain or um, have you noticed that you're drinking when these things happen that you know have you ever kind of really thought about your relationship with alcohol and I had but not with the support of someone else to kind of help me to look at it Mm -hmm. in a healthy way Um, and then I decided I wanted to quit drinking and she recommended I go to a 12-step group and I didn't want to go and I felt like that was just taking it to a whole like level I was not prepared to admit it to that degree or like go in a room and say you know my name's Annika and I'm an alcoholic um so she would give me the information and I'd come back to see her and she'd say did you check out a meeting and I'd say no and then eventually she disclosed to me that she was sober and that she that was a part of her life and I thought this woman was like amazing like goals for life I mean um and I think that gave me the courage to be like, okay, well, I can do this. Because I had to ask her things like, what do people do at night when they're not drinking? Like, I don't understand even, what do you do with the time? What do you do? I I so remember having that question. Like, I was completely mystified by that. Yeah. Yeah, just like, what do, what do I, I don't even know how to live. Um, and that was that really scary place where, like, you, you know you have to stop because it's absolutely – was ruining my life, but I couldn't imagine not having it either. Cause it was like my best friend. And mm-hmm. between the time when I decided I wanted to quit and I quit for the first time, um, that was a really hellish, like six or eight months because I would quit and relapse and quit and relapse. And then I started going to AA or to 12 step programs and that made it better. And I was really lucky cause I went in St. Louis to this certain place where there was a women's meeting and it was like young women with families and jobs. And I mean, they were some of the coolest women I'd ever met. And that's where I started to learn that like, you don't have to drink, like you, you can live a life without alcohol. Cause I just did not see how that was a reality. It didn't seem realistic to me. Um, and I got this woman who sponsored me and started kind of working the steps and, I would go to her cool apartment and she always like wore the coolest clothes and she ate these like salads from this fancy deli. Um, and I just admired her and I'd, I'd go to her apartment. She'd fold her laundry and have me read or she'd read to me and she was just cool. And I would tell her the stuff that had happened to me. And she was very laid back about all of it. Like she never made too big of a deal out of me or my stories, which at first I was like, Hey, I, 
this is big stuff I'm telling you. Um, and I'd be struggling and she would just say like, when you're in enough pain, you'll change. You know, when you, when you, you'll get there when you get there. Um, and she had this very hands-off approach, which worked amazing for me. Cause like, I, I'm the type of person that someone would have said, you have to do this, this, and this. I have a really hard time uh, doing, I'm, I just hate it when people tell me what to do. And it makes me resist even more sometimes. (laughs) Um, But I feel really lucky to have met her and these other women. And I did get sober. So um, I got sober in 2006 or five, 2006. And I was sober for about two years and life got really good. I, we ended up moving to Canada for a couple of years and there's really good recovery, like in Vancouver where we lived and I felt really happy. I mean, I physically felt happy, like good. And I just, I had these moments of just intense peace and contentment that I'd never felt in my whole life. And about two years into that, I just think I felt so good that I kind of started to convince myself that I didn't, that alcohol wasn't really the problem because I'd had, you know, those trauma experiences I had some depression and anxiety stuff going on. And I thought I've done so much work in the last two years um, to address like my history of trauma. My, you know, I felt like I had more spiritual side to myself. Um, I'd worked on some, just, I just worked hard to be a sober person and to live in recovery. And I got, I got good. I thought, and I, and then I thought, well, I can drink again. And so I totally planned it out. Like I told my sponsor, I told my friends, I called my family members. I actually paid money to talk to this guy in New York who writes a book called control, um, take control of your drinking and you may not need to quit. So I read that book and then I called him and paid him money to like tell him my story to see if he agreed that I could probably drink moderately. So I was very conscientious. <laughs> you were very I determined. Felt so good. It felt so good. I was like, I'm a happy, well-adjusted person. And I started to resent the 12 step program I was in because it told me that at my core, there was a problem or like I had a disease or something was wrong with me. And I started to get like angry about it and feel like there's nothing wrong with me. I am killing it. Like this, I'm living a great life and you know, I felt very good about myself, um, which is good. But I also just was resenting that program stuff. And so I did. I started drinking again, and I had a journal, and I'd write down, like, how many drinks I was having. And I had, like, planned out this whole contract to myself of kind of some rules around my drinking and what I would do if I felt like it got out of control again. And um, so I started, yeah, and within two months, maybe it was just back to daily heavy drinking. So that didn't, didn't work. But the problem with addiction is like, once you're in it, it feels really hard to know when the next time is you're going to be able to get out of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've been through that in St. Louis, that six to eight months where I kept trying really hard to quit. And then I'd be drinking again. And I kept, and then I try really hard to quit again. And And so for the next three years, I just tried to moderate my drinking Um, It consumed my life, like my life shrank down real small. It was just go to work, come home, drink, try to maintain a relationship with my husband. Um, And I knew I was miserable and I knew that every day was like Groundhog's Day, but I was so scared to quit again. Um, And also I felt like I'd kind of turned my back on that community that I'd had and was still dealing with like not thinking that that was the solution because it placed like a problem within me or something. Um, So I really resisted getting sober through a 12 step program again. And I basically just accepted like my life is going to be kind of horrible, but I don't have to quit drinking again and I can put up with that. So I'll just not go anywhere or like drink in public because I can't do that. I'll kind of try to just control my environment and make it so small that I'll only be hurting myself and I'll just hide it from everybody, like how bad this is. Um, so for me, a lot of that was just emotional. Like the bottom was a lot of emotional stuff. I didn't lose my job. I didn't crash my car. Um, I didn't do anything besides really just sit indoors and drink. Um, and 
I always thought in the back of my mind, like, but once I have a baby, then this problem will take care of itself because I'll feel so connected to this baby and I'll love her so much that it'll just cure my alcoholism and I'll be, I'll be good. And so I just kept that little, I remember consciously thinking that, but like, you'll quit when you get pregnant or you'll quit when you have a child. So you don't really have to try right now. Um, and then I did get pregnant. And the, ne- the day I found out I was pregnant, I was like, oh, God, I'm going to have to stop drinking. And so that night, I, I found out really early, like five weeks. Um, I didn't stop that night. I was like, I'm going to just drink kind of tonight and, you know, smoke a few more cigarettes. And then the next day I quit. Um, but I did drink a handful of times during my pregnancy. And actually, it was the only time in my life I felt a little bit of control and ability to say, I'm going to have a glass of wine and stop and actually stop. Um, And I think that almost gave me a false sense of security for after she was born. Um, But then I had my daughter and I was super excited to be pregnant and to have a baby. And I brought her home and I loved her like so much, Um, but it overwhelmed me. I mean, I think I felt like an astronaut that goes out to space and they give you that little rope to like tether you to the mothership. And it was like, that just got cut. And I was just floating in all these feelings. Some of them were scary and some of them were good, but my whole life, like I never wanted to feel what I was feeling. I always artificially altered my experience. And so the same thing happened. And I think I had like some postpartum anxiety going on. Um, but if that anxiety situation was there and the house was burning down with the anxiety, it was like the drinking just poured gasoline on it. And so, yeah, I, and it's really hard as a mom because a lot of things in the culture today tell you that like how you do momming is you drink. So, you know, I came home from the hospital and I had trouble with breastfeeding and people would say, well, have a beer to help let your milk down. Um, So I started drinking beer to like help my milk down. Well, then I was buying those little strips to see if I had too much alcohol in my breast milk, you know, and it became this like juggling thing with my drinking and my baby Mm -hmm. and like wanting her to go to sleep so I could drink the way I wanted to drink, which was more heavily. But then I'd wake up at three in the morning, full of terror and just shame. And I was having all this anxiety and then I'd Google things like, what if I die? Or like, what if she doesn't wake up? Like I'd Google about SIDS and uh, I just was so anxious, but the alcohol was like making the anxiety so much worse. Um, And then I kind of needed it because I was like, well, I can't fall asleep. So I need to drink to help myself fall asleep. And then I wake up in a panic and, um, and I'd never not worked. So I had all this time and the days just like stretched out before me. And I was stir crazy and I, everything seemed like it would be more enjoyable or manageable if I was a little bit drunk. Um, so I was just recreating all the patterns of my life, but you know, there were times when I'd be like, well, it's only three or two, or even on the weekends if my husband was home, it could be noon where I'd be like, I'm going to just start having a beer, you know, and that'll make bath time better. And, um, but I definitely had times when I'd wake up, in the morning and not really remember like who put her to bed. Did I put her to bed? Mm -hmm. Was there stuff in her crib when I put her to bed? Like, you know, I had to walk upstairs to put her in her crib. Um, Did I feed her before I put her to bed? Did I change her diaper? And like my husband was around, but it didn't matter to me because I knew like the night before I'd only planned to have one drink or maybe I'd really said to myself, like um, you're just going to have one drink and then, you know, a bottle and a half of wine would be gone. And I'm coming to like to a screaming baby and thinking like, how long did she scream in the middle of the night? And I didn't hear her. Um, So my drinking just stayed at the level it was before I had a child, which shocked me because I always thought once you have a baby, like you don't drink like that because you just love your baby so much. And for me, it was quite the opposite. Like the, I think all the feelings related to loving her and then the guilt and just exacerbated it. It just made it all more intense and worse. Um, Yeah. And so when she was about six months old, nothing like major happened. There was no big event, but I um, just looked at her and was like, what am I doing? And I just had that, like Yovita talks about in Drunk Mom, this 
the train of addiction was just going fast and furious. And I just had a moment where I was able to see clearly. And I was like, I can't live like this. I will not do this to her. I'm not, I cannot do this. This is not okay. But it like hit me like a lightning bolt. And um, I feel really lucky that I knew about the 12 step community and um, because I knew exactly where to go and went there, looked it up, went there, walked in the room, took like the biggest exhale I'd taken in like three years and was just like, this is who I am. Like I'm an alcoholic and no amount of figuring myself out or going to therapy or controlling myself or changing things up is going to change that. And I could either spend the rest of my life trying to manage this thing or I could actually live my life. You know, it was like very clearly one or the other. Um, yeah. And I'm, I mean, I feel so grateful that that place was there for me and it's still a place that's there for me, but also being a mom, like I found online support has been huge because you're stuck with kids and you can't always get out of the house or like, easily connect with someone and online there's such a community so I listen to the bubble hour all the time um after having her um (laughs) yay (laughs) yeah and actually the crying out loud website that was affiliated with was it affiliated with Ellie yes Ellie was one of the creators of that website and yeah I think it's now either archived or I'm not even sure if it's even up anymore um, but I think it's in archived state. So I think the stories are there, but it's not being added to anymore. It's a tremendous resource. Oh, it's great. And I used to listen to like the bubble hour. I read Unpickled and like Recovering Dawn and all these different websites. And I also, I wrote an article for crying out loud called Frank the Tank is a terrible mother. Um, and she published it on her site. And I was like, oh my gosh, because <laughs> do you know who Frank the Tank is? That character from old school. It's no. a funny movie. He's just Will Uh Ferrell, the actor, and, like, once he has a little bit of alcohol, he just, he says, once it hits your lips, it's just so good, and he can't stop, and then he's, like, streaking through the quad, or, um, (laughs) and I just talked in this funny little thing about how that character, like, that part of me just came right along with me into motherhood, but, like, didn't make me a very good mom, (laughs) so Frank the Tank is not a good mom. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so just having online support has been huge and I'm in a lot of the online groups and I remember like emailing early on Stephanie um Wild Taylor and telling her you know just emailing these strangers and being like I'm a mom and I have a drinking problem and getting this these people who would write you back and say like you can do it and just stick with it and life gets better and um when you're quitting drinking you just feel so alone and especially into I would go on like Kelly mom for breastfeeding or like Facebook to say, can you drink and breastfeed? And all the messages I got were like, yeah, you know, if you can drive a car, you can breastfeed. Like it's just the whole social media thing, which is what you're in a lot after having a baby because you're stuck in your house or like kind of grounded in a way um, is so encouraging of drinking. And so Mm -hmm. it meant everything to me to connect with other women who were parenting or not parenting, but just who weren't drinking, but seemed to be living lives that were full and enjoyable. It just helps you realize that giving up drinking is not like a death sentence. It's actually the beginning of the best, the best years of my life have been the ones where I've been sober. The most tragic, depressing, difficult years of my life have been the ones where I've been drinking heavily or trying so hard to moderate my drinking that it was like barely a life. It took so much effort to yep. to control my drinking. There's a freedom in not having alcohol in your life that's hard to describe to someone that's deep in the chains <laughs> that can't mm-hmm. even imagine, as you said, like, well, what do I do if I'm not drinking? Like, I re- remember thinking that exact thing, like, so... I just have tea when I watch TV then like what yeah what do other people do and uh, and now I look back on you know a decade of daily drinking and think what did I do like I I did a lot during the day but you know I would really come home and just vegetate at night and totally. I think of all the you know things that I do all all hours of the day now I mean it's just 
I just am so free and it's okay if I want to do nothing. If I want to vegetate with a cup of tea, that's okay. But I can also get in my car and go to the grocery store if I want to at 10 o'clock at night. If one of my kids calls me and says they have a flat tire and they need a ride, I can go get them. Whereas God help anyone who needed help for me after I started drinking, uh, you know, during those years, because you just can't, you're so bound by it. So you've had more children now. Yes. Yep. I just kept going. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And how does, so you describe, you know, your, your first uh, six month of motherhood. um, I mean, those, that's a hard transition, no matter what I had postpartum depression that was undiagnosed, but, you know, looking back on it now, it's so clear to me, it was a really hard time. Um, uh, I wasn't drinking problematically at the time, but I mean, I just think that's such a hard transition regardless. And to be carrying that plus the heavy load of of um, problematic drinking is is a lot. So how does motherhood compare in recovery to, uh, to when you were drinking? Oh, my gosh. It's So when I had my first daughter and then I went back to work, that was when it got really bad because it was like I can either work and have a baby have a baby and drink or, you know, I couldn't do all three at once. It was like something has to give and I don't want it to be the baby that goes. I don't want it, you know, and I needed my job to to have income and money. Um, But life just felt completely unmanageable and my nerves were just shot. Like I feel like I had a vibrating, you know, if you think of your pulse, just boom, 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 boom. It, it was like a voice in my pulse that was just saying like, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And I just felt like that just at a deep cellular level that like something is wrong. I'm not okay. Um, and I felt like that in the period I drank before too, but as a mom, it was just intensified to the nth degree. And that description just takes my breath away. Cause I, I think a lot of us can relate to that feeling, but I never put words to it like that. That is so how it feels. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, and, and so like for anyone who's pumped, like I clearly remember after having my daughter and struggling with the breastfeeding and being pump, pumping and the pump makes a little whooshing noise. It'll be like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. but if you, if you're doing it long enough, it feels like it almost says things to you. Like I'm mm-hmm. not, I wasn't hallucin or having auditory hallucinations, but I've heard other moms say this too. But I would be pumping and be like, it would. I would sometimes get that, like, you're not okay. Like, this is, mm-hmm. everything's wrong and, like, feels overwhelming and I don't even like my life. And I, I mean, I never tried to hurt myself, but I did have a couple moments toward right before I got sober where I felt like my husband and my daughter would be better off if I just wasn't a part of this equation because I'm just going to drag everybody down with me. Like, Mm-hmm. Not that I'm necessarily going to crash my car, but like the depression and like the heaviness and just the weight, the emotional weight of me in the world felt like a total bummer. It's just like, what is going on? And, and you did that, see, was that changed when you quit drinking or did you have to do extra work to work through the depression? Was it no, secondary? It changed. Uh, it changed. Yeah. I mean, it really did. And I, I mean, it got back to the place like when I not drank before. I still, I do work on myself. Like I try to be aware of my part in things and I try to check my expectations. And so I feel like recovery for me is definitely a daily process of that takes intention and work and showing up. But I didn't know how to like my life when I was drinking. And so I have four kids now. um, And I've gone through other things after having babies. Like with my second, I feel like I worked too much to kind of escape or like social media can be a thing for me sometimes that I have to step away from. Um, So I can get super into things or even in my head, like I can just go to like la la land in my head for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but in general, I feel like with my four kids now, like I can just sit on the floor with them and I'm happy, but I also Mm -hmm. strive to only be like a mediocre parent. So I can't, (laughs) necessarily like get them all dressed up and take them somewhere or you know stuff like that makes me unhappy like if I'm like oh I got to get them all in a matching outfit to take a picture of them like it ruins my entire day so I <laughs> let <laughs> you're not I let a lot of that go <laughs> you know 
we don't do a whole lot. Like we just kind of hang out with each other and um, play games and color. And um, I'm definitely not like on the go very much having the, cause they're six, four, and then the twins are one. So if I try to do too much, I start to, I can start to feel overwhelmed, but now I can just take a step back and be like, why are you doing that? Is it because you think someone else thinks you should be doing that? Like, is that because that's what good moms do? And if you don't do that, you're not a good mom. So recovery for me has been like a returning to my own truth, kind of like, Right. Yeah. And, being and I, able to you know, you that more clearly, you use that word mediocre mom, but I know that's sort of tongue in cheek because what you yeah. really mean is you're allowing yourself to define what being a good mom means to you. And that means being a hundred percent present with your children and not distracted by all these other, you know, societal demands that make you feel like you look like a good mom, um, right. which as codependent types, get easily sucked into more concerned what other people think of us. That's our reality, right? If we're in that mindset and um, uh, that can really fuel a lot of feelings of discomfort too. So I love how you say that. I mean, you know, you're giving yourself permission to, to do what you know in your heart is the best thing for your kids and to not make yourself crazy. <laughs> well, and also to accept them. I think that, cause I'm like kind of controlling. I think that was part of my drinking too, was just controlling the way I felt or I can get, and when I get in fear, anxiety, I get like a little extra controlling of my environment. And a big thing in recovery has been to let my kids be who they are and to recognize that like they were designed who they are. And I'm there to kind of play a role, but it's not my job to make them into, I guess I've lowered the expectations that like, I'm going to be this perfect mom who shapes these four little people into like, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. I kind of more see myself as like, Oh, it's so cool that I get to be present to watch them become who they're meant to be. And a little more hands off, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Um, that uh, like, I love how the lessons of recovery spill over is, is what you just described that- Learning that stay on your own side of the street um, is like can can be a positive influence in motherhood too. And I mean, you're there for them when they need you, but also accepting them at a level that is profound. Um, I think it's what we all want from our parents. I love that. Now I want to ask you um, a couple of things about your family. So you came from kind of a fun partying kind of family, very social. Are they supportive of your decision to leave alcohol behind and have any of them coincidentally, you know, realized that they had problematic um, drinking unfolding as well? Yeah. So um, they were supportive. I think at times they were kind of confused. Like when I initially, when I was 25 or whatever, um, I think like me, they thought, well, if you just, go to therapy or tweak this thing or try a little harder in this area, you should be able to figure this out. Like you're a very capable, smart person. So just Mm -hmm. can't you just figure this out? And that went well with our family um, way of being, which was just, you just work hard. And if you don't achieve something, you just work a little harder and -hmm. eventually you'll like meet your goals. And so Sometimes I think what's been confusing for them is that like my sobriety means letting go and giving up power over this thing. Like I've kind of lost the ability to choose whether or not I get to drink. And that takes a load off me. It's like, if I engage in the conversation, should I drink today? I'll lose every time. So for me, the thing that works for me is just kind of letting it go. Like that's not a part of my life. I don't even go there in my mind. And sometimes I think that, confuses them because it's kind of a paradox you know um and we have so much drinking like all over our family and there's definitely things that I see that I'm like oh that's a little but I just uh I'm still the only one who's sober um well that's not true there are a couple people but there nobody else in my family would be comfortable like talking about it or um I don't even know. I can't really say because they'd probably all be mad at me if I talked about it. (laughs) (laughs) I, it's funny you say that because, um, um, my family is, um, they're, they're supportive. They're definitely supportive, but they certainly don't like listen to every podcast or read every blog post. Um, 
uh, except my mother-in-law, God bless her. She might be listening to this. She reads my blog and, and does listen to some podcasts, but, um, but I feel like my family is just sort of like, Oh, that's that thing you do. That's your thing. And you know, they're not, they're not that interested in it, but I would say overall they're supportive, but there's something about that. There's a disconnect there. I feel like. And um, yeah, well, even like this year, I think I've definitely been inspired to be more open about the sexual assault stuff, just with all the me too. And I wrote a post mm-hmm. about my experience. Um, I had another experience when I was a child that was kind of a one-off thing um, that was inappropriate. And it was my daughter, my oldest is about the same age that I was when that happened. And I just got all these feelings. And that's one thing about being sober is I could, when I get feelings, I can kind of have a, an awareness around like, what's going on with me? Like, what is up with me? Um, And I figured out that it's like, oh, I'm really tuned into like her safety in the world. And so whatever. So I wrote this thing that was like super public, um, just on my Facebook page, but talking about my own sexual assault experiences, acknowledging for the first time that when I was 21, I was actually raped, you know, um, and using that word, which I'd never Mm -hmm. like, I'd always never felt comfortable using, um, And my parents were like sad about it and kind of like, are you sure that you want this out there? I mean, everyone's going to, people are like reading this about you. And I was hurt that they didn't, you know, if I got a new job or something, they would have like shared that on their Facebook. But if I was like, you know, I've I've been through all this stuff and it's been horrible and difficult, but it's, it's set me up to live this like amazing life. Like I'm so proud of my recovery And I'm so proud of how hard I've worked to like overcome some of the traumatic things that have happened to me. But those aren't things that we feel like as women that we should share about ourselves. And so I've been challenging myself to be like, if I would post about a rate, like a honor that I got or something in the community, why wouldn't I post about how, what a good space I'm in emotionally around these issues. But anyway, so my mom and I had this tough conversation and I love her so much because the fact that I can share is because I have parents who love me and they're not going to like ostracize me or be mad at me. Um, but I think families feel like, was that our fault or did we, you know, did we not protect you or did we, if we would have done something different, would you have not had to face this adversity or, so I mm-hmm. think it's just hard with parents because they see it as a reflection on them and mm-hmm. my parents are wonderful, but mm-hmm. I don't know. They don't, they're not into my stuff. And I've actually, after, cause my mom was just kind of like this, I, I don't want my college roommate to know that you've been through all this. And I'm like, but why not? It's like the best part of my life, you know? And uh, <laughs> she's like, well, don't expect me to like have, have you've had your whole life to work through this and come to a place where you want to share. You can't give me like 24 hours notice to do that. And really good recovery, point. Really good yeah. point on your mom's part, right? Because we, yeah. you, you thought it took you years to get to where you were ready to quit drinking and ready to, you know, like think of all the working up that we do to deal with these things. And then we just want our families to just instantly accept what took us years to figure out, you know, and I think that's really fair. Um, right. Good point. <laughs> yeah. And she, and I, I, and I think because I'm in recovery, I have the emotional maturity to hear her. And to mm-hmm. and to respect her, and my sister is an is an artist, um, and so she's been helpful too. Because she's like, as you put things out there, not everyone that you love is going to care, and that can feel hurtful. But you'll find your own community of people who care a lot. Um, and so I kept that in mind that like my target audience isn't like my cousin Billy, you know. <laughs> right. It's yeah. the women who get me, and I get them because we've had the same. But I've had to be a little bit careful with my family because I feel like they're just not as um, – I just feel like I'm in this empowered place where I'm like, I'm going to share my story because I don't have anything to be ashamed of. Like, if someone else did something to me, I'm not going to feel bad about myself, you know, um, whereas they haven't, like you said, gone through the process to 
I think your point about the target audience is important too, because when you're, when you do this type of advocacy and um, sharing stories and connecting people, you're really, you're doing it as a service to help other people who want that help or who are trying to find answers for themselves or, or in that contemplation stage of change. And um, you're not doing it for approval or gold stars or, you know, there's, there's, when your goal is service, then um, you're just you're happy when people make use of it who need it. And um, I can really see that that's happening for you. So I think that's fantastic. I want yeah, to think you, it's, oh, sorry. that's okay. But I do want to I want to ask you. We're running out of time, and there's a couple things that I think I really would really like our listeners to hear. And one of them is on your perspective around the trauma that you had um, with rape and with. Um, uh, attacks and assaults that were significant. I get my first part of my question is, did you always know that that was part of what was driving it or did it take a while to figure that out? And secondly, when you talk about the work that you've done on them, what is that work? If someone knows that they have something they need to address and deal with, where do they start? Yeah, well, I have like a whole other I mean, my life and my career, I'm actually a psychotherapist. And I think I was really inspired by the woman who helped me when I was in my early 20s to kind of walk that path. But it's been over time, and I've focused a lot of my professional life on trauma and addiction. Go figure. Um, mm-hmm. So the more I learned about what happens when you're traumatized, like if you're walking out the door and a bear pops up in your face and you're with your kids, you go through a whole, your body does this whole process of, taking a snapshot psychologically of that moment to protect you in the future. So it'll incorporate things into a memory that you're not aware of, like the smell in the air, the, the shoes you were looking at, the, um, the way the air felt on your body, like the way that things felt music that you heard. Um, And so over time, as I got older, I realized that alcohol and the way I felt inside during those scary experiences like having a certain blood alcohol level, I think was a trigger for me. Um, Another interesting one was when I got out of that car and I ran and I was afraid he was coming. Like, I didn't know if he would shoot me. I don't, I don't know what was going on, but I ran as fast as I could. My heart really pounded. And so an example would be for a couple of years after that, I'd try to exercise and I'd get on a treadmill to run and I'd start running. And as soon as my heart would start pounding and I was running, I would have like a full blown panic attack. And I think sometimes our body is like doing that because it's taken the snapshot of a time in our life that was scary that we can't even always recall. And it's saying it's sending alarm bells off like, ah, something terrible is about to happen. And we don't know how to deal with that because there's no threat that's sitting in front of us. It's all our bodies like trying to, to avoid the bear, but kind of going haywire. Um And so I think for me, a part of it was just that because I had some stuff happen with alcohol in my system, that once I'd get to a certain level of drunk, it would just go dark, like crying, you know, and sometimes women who have experienced trauma will almost recreate the trauma, Um, you know, picking fights, like, like wanting to fight or argue or um, be in conflict or have like a big emotional thing you know, and and it was kind of like, where's this coming from? But it took me years to figure that out. And I did EMDR, which is eye movement, um, desensitization and reprocessing. And it helps people with these isolated like trauma incidents to find some recovery so that the memory gets stored in appropriate place and isn't just right up front and center to like trigger you all the time. And that was life-changing for me. Can you Um, explain how that works? Yeah, it's kind of, it sounds so bizarre, but so kind of that thing I was explaining about the snapshot and your body has, mm-hmm. is um, storing memories and it stores, you know, emotions, cognitions you have about yourself, physical sensations, all this stuff. And if you had to remember everything that happened to you every day, your brain would like shut down. It would be way too much. So when you experience something that happens and it gets processed and like put away in long-term filing if you thought of your brain as like a bunch of filing cabinets but when really impactful things happen and those can be big traumas like a sexual assault or watching a loved one lose their life or really intense fighting between your parents as a child um, or it could be little traumas like being humiliated 
or having like someone just break your heart in a very devastating way, um, your, your body kind of wants to hold those front and center and they just get stuck and they just don't get processed and like put away into long-term filing. And sometimes that looks like not even being able to remember all of what happened because parts of your brain that store memory can be flooded with stress hormones and the stuff that gets you activated during the fight or flight response and it can actually shut down memory. So they might even be like unconscious. Sorry, let me know if I'm talking too long. So but no. what EMDR does is you kind of go back and you um, replay what was happening while a therapist does what's called bilateral stimulation. And they, they found that by stimulating both sides of the brain, as you're trying to recreate and recall a memory, it can help it move into like the appropriate storage place in your brain. Um, they think partly because they have you like look back and forth as you're reprocessing these memories um, and you're doing it all like inside of yourself. You don't even have to tell the therapist everything you're experiencing. Um, but when you're in REM sleep, which is where they think you do, your brain does a lot of like cleaning up and downloading and processing, your eyes move back and forth at this pace of about back and forth at one second. And they think maybe that's why um, the woman who invented it, Francine Shapiro, kind of figured it out on her own. And then they started studying it and found that it actually worked. And like the World Health Organization for veterans of wars recommends like cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR for trauma survivors um, who are having re-experiencing and flashbacks. So it's really cool. But I, I'm not like an cool. expert on the brain. But it, it's So when you're the patient, though, they just have you like think back to that moment and then what do they use lights or how do they get your eyes to move back and forth? Do you just like some, follow a pen? Yeah. So some people have light boards. Some people use their finger. Some people have like a little wand. Um, and you can also do tappers in your hands or the therapist can like tap your knees or you can do headphones. It just has to be both sides of the brain being stimulated like every, you know, back and forth, basically both sides of the body. Wow. So there's different. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really, it's really cool. And I ended up getting trained in it because it was so helpful for me. And I work a lot with moms who have like birth trauma and, you know, childhood trauma. Um, but, but that's in my like other, and it was a, I've come out in my community now as being like a sober woman, um, which was really scary, but now it's out there. So can't put it back in the bottle. <laughs> Okay, we're, we've gone over, so I have to ask you, though, about this, but I have to ask it quickly, because I actually hear from a lot of therapists and people that are in the helping field who feel like they can't even go to an AA or 12-step meeting or recovery group or tell anyone they have a problem because they feel like they're supposed to have all the answers. So can you give a few words of encouragement to anyone who's listening who feels like their profession um, is it somehow makes puts more pressure on them to be more secretive about their sobriety yeah I mean I'm lucky to have had a mentor at a different stage in my life who says you can't take people where you haven't been so if you want people to have recovery for themselves as your patients or your clients um, how are you going to give that to them or help them with that if you don't know what that is if you're not it's terrifying to walk into a meeting terrifying but we could suggest that to a stranger inside of an exam room, but not have the courage to walk that path ourselves. And so it's, I, and I don't have all the answers. I don't, I don't think we're supposed to, but um, yeah, I would just, I, I guess if it was me, I would just, uh, I would just say like the more you grow as a person and allow yourself to be vulnerable and, figure out your own stuff, the more helpful you're going to be to that person who walks in your office and needs you to be like of service to them. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Thank you. Um, okay. Last question. Mother Recovering, the podcast. So tell us about it and what made you decide to do this and um, who do you hope will listen and connect with it? Yeah, so I listen to a ton of podcasts, so I've always loved just listening to podcasts. Um, and then I listen to this one called Mom and Mind for my work stuff. It's about 
postpartum depression and they talk to real moms and interview people and, um, and, you know, all postpartum stuff, but they'd never had an alcohol or drug uh, addict or anyone like that on the podcast. And that is a mental health condition. And so that prompted me to go out and search for like postpartum alcoholism or postpartum, you know, motherhood and recovery. Um, And I couldn't really find a podcast out there and for kind of that specific audience. And if there is one, let me know, because I just didn't find it in my search. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, so I'm, I'm impulsive. And when I get my mind on something, I just do it. So I just really impulsively started doing the podcast. <laughs> and just like emailed some people that I was like, I would love to talk to this person. And was absolutely floored when, for example, Ann Dowsett Johnston wrote me back. I was like, what? You'll actually talk to me? Um, <laughs> So I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but, um, yeah, uh, like every yeah. week. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I am nobody, but I would love to talk to you. So, yeah. So I just kind of impulsively started it. And the audience is really in my mind, women like me who are stuck at home with new babies, overwhelmed, and just listening to someone else's story can just give you the encouragement you need for that day, not to drink. And I found that like, you know, I don't know if a 12 step program is the, the be all end all, but of all the things I've that have worked for me, it's, it's more about connecting with another person who has a shared experience to remind me of what it was like when I was drinking and how much better it is now. Cause otherwise I'll forget and I'll think I'm great. I can drink again. Like I did before. And I never want to forget cause I don't want to ruin my life. <laughs> No kidding. Please don't. (laughs) You're you're such a shining light um, in recovery that uh, I, you know, I just, I'm really grateful for what you're doing. And, uh, uh, and that helps us be so around in time. So, yeah. Uh, 2011. What's your sobriety date? Me too. I'm March of 2011. Me too. Look at that. Oh, funny. Yep. March 20th. Or sorry. I'm totally, no, that's my daughter's birthday. I'm August of 2011. <laughs> my daughter's birthday is in March, but I didn't get sober till August. So, oh, I'm such a oh, dork. that's a mom so, brain. Mom brain, yeah, right August there. Oh, that's great. Well, um, we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much for being here, for sharing your story and being so wholehearted and open-hearted and um, for all of the things that you're putting out there right now. So um, thank you for being here and thank you for doing you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I I really, really appreciate it. So your website is Mm motherrecovering.com. And that is both a blog and the podcasts are available there. And then your podcasts are also syndicated to iTunes and Stitcher and all the other places where people get podcasts, aren't they? Yep. Excellent. And I do like Twitter. uh, I tweet and do Instagram too. So You do all the things. I do all, all the, the things. things. <laughs> I need to not do all the things so much. Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here, Annika. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thank you for everything you're doing. Oh, thank you, too. All right. Well, listeners, if you'd like to reach Annika, you can go to motherrecovering.com and uh, contact her through her website. Or you can email thebubblehour at gmail.com and uh, send something to me and I will make sure that Annika gets it. So that's it from us today. I hope everyone has a great week and thanks for listening. So until next time, everybody, take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame Like the hand We think you're strong you keep it all the time.
Hey! 